We are once again in the same passage we were last week. Uh, Man, there is a lot to do in the book of Revelation. So we're in Revelation chapter 13, and I invite you to open up your Bibles there and follow along with what we're doing. You can find it on page 1880 in your pew Bibles. Otherwise, just go like 10 pages from the very end, and you should find Revelation chapter 13. Now, last week, we talked about uh, verses 1 through 10 in particular, and we we got to a few things in verses 11 to 18, but I'm going to focus on verses 11 to 18 this week. So, I catch you up. Last week, we were introduced to the beast, right? Actually, the two beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. And what we found is that the beast from the sea, in, in particular, was representative of the power of the dragon, the power of Satan, and the way of Satan married to the power of the state for the people in the first century. Now, there are a few things we need to be careful of when we do this. Uh, Sometimes people casually like to call our government the beast. I don't know that that's appropriate. I tend to think not, even though our government has some beastly characteristics, because Satan is always at work in the world. And there is no government that's free from his influence. The only government that will be free from his influence is the government of Jesus Christ when he returns one day and makes all things new and all things right. So we want to be careful about that, but we also want to acknowledge that when we see the way of the dragon at work, we need to recognize this and we need to stand opposed to it. I came across uh, a quote this week. Let's see if I can find it, because I'm getting to this a little bit out of order. But uh, basically, what I wanted to say at this moment was one of the voices from the beast of... We we have now the second beast. You know what? I've gotten really lost. I'm just going to go right back. I have a cold this week. I'm going to blame it on that. Let's just start from the beginning. Excuse me. The beast of the land uh, is the second beast that we find. The beast of the sea is the power of the state at work, but the beast of the land is the propaganda machine at work, telling us, you need to do what the beast of the sea says. You need to trust the beast of the sea, and ultimately, you need to worship the beast of the sea, the power and the way of the dragon at work in the world. And who is this beast of the sea? We identified that while the beast of the land is the power of the dragon in cooperation with the power of the state in our world to a greater or lesser degree at any time in history. The first century audience would have seen this uh, as married to Rome, and very rightly so. But now the beast of the land comes along, and he is an imitation, Jesus Christ. We read in verse 11, I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? And if you remember, we've run into a lamb before in the book of Revelation. At the beginning of the book, uh, we were introduced to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David who has conquered, and then John sees someone who looks like a slain lamb. And of course, this is Jesus Christ. But now the beast of the sea, or the beast, excuse me, of the land is described as being like a lamb with two horns. And this picture, again, reminds us this is an imitation Jesus Christ, because when the lamb, who is Jesus Christ, is described early in Revelation, he is said to have seven horns, which emphasize his complete authority, his complete power, and his complete rule. 
But this lamb only has two horns, which takes us back to the book of Daniel, chapter 8, in which uh, Daniel sees a vision of a ram with two horns rampaging forward and backward and left and right and everywhere crushing whatever he comes across. And this emphasizes the fact that, yes, it does seem like this beast of the land has free reign to do whatever he wants and to crush whoever he wants. But we need to recognize that this isn't the case. This isn't the case. The one who speaks with the words of the dragon and says, I am your only hope. You need to exercise power and authority and influence. You need to crush your enemies. That's the only way to get ahead in this world. He only appears to be like Jesus. He only appears to have the authority of Jesus. And as we come to understand this, I think we start to broaden our understanding of the book of Revelation. I love what Richard Bauckham says. He says uh, that the major problem with the beasts is not limited to their persecution of Christians. Sometimes we make it very us versus them, right? Well, we know it's the beast because they're making life hard for us as Christians, we know that they're the enemy because they're, they're you know, trying to get us. Sometimes we even invent enemies for ourselves in some ways. Right? I, I, I know there's that saying out there, and I, I actually think it's usually a good saying. You've probably heard it. Not today, Satan. Has anyone ever said that? Not today, Satan. And we start thinking Satan's behind everything bad that ever happens in our world. Right? And that's kind of convenient for us, isn't it? Because it means at the end of the day, maybe it's not my fault. Right? It's, we, we get to the, the store. So this is, I noticed something in our family life together. Uh, if, if we want to take a trip or go out somewhere, uh, it, things happen very differently if Kayla is, is leading it or if I'm leading it. See, if Kayla's leading it, it takes a long time to prepare and to get out the door. And it makes me very frustrated. It's like, oh, we just got to get there. Right? But when Kayla's leading it, we get there with everything we need. Now, when I'm leading our trip to wherever we're going, it's like, man, we're going to get there on time or early, and we're going to be totally unprepared. Like, I didn't bring anyone water. You know, when the kids were babies, it's like, do we have diapers? Because there's poop everywhere. I don't have any wipes. You know, it was a disaster whenever I was in charge. Because, yeah, we got there on time, but we got there completely unprepared. Right? And, and you know, maybe, maybe... I might be tempted to say, not today, Satan, right? I'm putting the diapers in the car. No, it's, it's just not today, Ian, right? Get it together, man, and do it yourself. Stop blaming everyone else for your problems. And I think as Christians, sometimes we do that. And we, we get a persecution complex where we start thinking that everything go, that goes wrong in our lives is because we're Christians and we're being persecuted. And it's just not the case. It's just not the case. Sometimes we make our own bed, and I think a good illustration of this, you know, I, I'll be straight with you. In this church, we have a, we have a traditional understanding of what, it mean, what marriage is all about, what marriage means. A traditional understanding of, of human sexuality driven by Scripture. And a lot of people don't like the church for this in these days. And I'm going to tell you right now, part of that's because the church has done a lousy job talking about these things. Because it was really easy to look at people and say, man, you're such a sinner instead of to look at people and say, did you know the good news in Jesus Christ? We made our own bed. Sometimes the persecution comes because we stink. And we did a bad job of showing people who Jesus was. But sometimes persecution does come 
It's real persecution. It comes from Satan. Satan's always behind it. But it's not just about us. The major problem with the beasts is not limited to their persecution of Christians. Instead, Revelation advances a thoroughgoing prophetic critique of the system of Roman power. It is a critique which makes Revelation the most powerful piece of political resistance literature from the period of the early empire. Do you ever think of the Bible as the most powerful piece of political resistance literature out there? Uh, I'll give you one quick example. Uh, Caesar, one of his titles was Kurios, Lord. And every time Christians would go around saying, Jesus Christ is Kurios, Jesus Christ is Lord, they were implicitly saying, and Caesar is not. The Bible is about politics. Sometimes they think we're afraid of that. Sometimes we get angry about it because we like getting angry about politics. But if we want to really be students of Scripture, we can't avoid the politics. And this is one of those cases. Bauckham goes on, It's not simply because Rome persecutes Christians that Christians must oppose Rome. Rather, it is because Christians must disassociate themselves from the evil of the Roman system that they are likely to suffer persecution. Say, Caesar, you are not God. You are not wise enough and strong enough and good enough to be God. And when you make that claim, you harm your people, and you harm the empire. And this is something that resonates actually all throughout history, saying to the government, you need to understand you can't solve all the problems. Now, I'm not making policy for us here this morning. I am not qualified. But I am saying that any time any institution starts to say, we can solve all of your problems, that's the time to start to say, no, you can't. And we need to resist anyone who claims that sort of thing because only Jesus Christ is able to do that. He is the true king, and he is coming back. And there is pressure. There is pressure to bow down to the claims of the dragon, to the beast of the land, and say, yes, you can solve all the world's problems. Yes, you're right. Might does make right. Yes, you're right. We have to crush our enemies instead of love them, like Jesus said, right? There is pressure to give in to this. And in the first century, this was exemplified not least by the fact that there was a whole religion worshiping Caesar. The emperors would die, and then the Senate, because the Senate was really just doing whatever the emperor said during the period of the empire, the Senate would then deify the emperor and say, the emperor who died, they are a god, and you should worship them. Some of the emperors, as a matter of fact, thought waiting for death was too long to wait for people to worship for them. So they started requiring that folks in the empire worship them while they were still alive, still Caesar, still doing these things. And the, this was an intensely, not just a religious thing, but a political thing. Because if you refused to worship the emperor, it wasn't just about the gods you wanted. It was about what you thought of Caesar. It was about your loyalty to the state. And there was pressure within the church to say, well, look at all the nice things that Caesar might have done for us. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Acts, it has a very positive outlook on the role of Rome in the formation of the church. The church is being persecuted here by Jews. And Paul, you know, as he's running away from persecution, it's often the Romans who save him. And Roman, Paul calls on his Roman citizenship in a number of different cases. In Philippi, 
The Jews stir up a crowd against him, and, and he gets thrown in jail, and he gets beaten up, and he's in jail overnight, and the next day the authorities come to let him go. And you could do this to people who weren't Roman citizens because, you know, it's kind of the, the rules were basically treat Romans well, and the rest of it, who cares? Be corrupt, do whatever you want to do. So they come out to let Paul free, and Paul says, hey, we're not going anywhere until you explain to me why you thought it was okay to beat up a Roman citizen without a trial. And then all of the leaders of the, the town of Philippi, the city of Philippi, come in to see Paul. They're like, we are so sorry. We didn't know. Please accept our apologies and leave town because we want to put this behind us as quickly as possible. There is a sense, of course, in which government is there for the good, not just of everybody else, but even the good of Christians. And yet it doesn't always work that way. But certainly in the day that this letter was written, that the book of Revelation was written, it was hard to live in the Roman Empire and be a Christian. And it was both religious and political. And there was pressure to compromise. So how do we, how do we avoid compromising? Because that's the big question, right? Because the Bible says, like in Romans 13, obey the governing authorities. And then here it says, but watch out for the fact that the government is infected by the dragon. What are you going to do? How do you tell the difference? And that's why it's so important to be able to identify the way of the dragon versus the way of the lamb. And if you want to know what the way of the lamb is, first of all, a lot of you know what I'm going to say. What do you need to read to know what the way of the lamb is? The Bible. Yeah, that's an easy question, right? Yeah. Read your Bible. How are you going to know who Jesus wants you to be unless you read his teaching about who he wants you to be? When Pastor Ian gets up front and he starts uh, uh, explicating the Bible, how are you going to know if I'm just saying my own thing or if I'm actually being faithful to the words of Scripture? Unless you're reading your Bible. Read your Bible. And if you want to know what the way of the Lamb looks like better than any place else, I'm going to give you three chapters in the Bible. Okay, three chapters. If you read these, you're going to be 90% of the way there. It's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And now the great thing, I love this. You're going to read the Sermon on the Mount, and even if you've never read it before, lots of it's going to be familiar. Because Jesus said things like, hey, love your neighbors, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Things that we hear sometimes. Sometimes these sayings of Jesus, they've actually entered popular culture, and people say it all the time. They say, turn the other cheek all the time. Now, sometimes they say it like, that's stupid, but sometimes they also say it like, well, that's a good thing to do here. Turn the other, it's not worth it. Like, count the cost. It's not worth having that fight. Just turn the other cheek and move right along. He said, treat others the way you want to be treated. And we learned that in kindergarten, right, is the golden rule. People said, this is the golden rule. And you're like, well, but Jesus said that. Some of the parts of the Sermon on the Mount are going to be really familiar. And then all of the Sermon on the Mount is going to challenge you in incredible ways. Because you're going to say, turn the other cheek. You can't be serious, Jesus. I actually read for you a quote the other week from Russell Moore describing why he wrote a, a new book. And he said it's because pastors and churches were, you know, they were preaching specifically, turn the other cheek from the Sermon on the Mount. And people would come up and say, where'd you get those liberal talking points? And the pastor would say, Jesus Christ, it's in the Bible. And, and then these people would say, well, it doesn't work that way anymore. 
because they've bought into the way of the dragon, because they can't recognize any longer the way of the lamb. May it never be so for any of us here. If we're going to give our lives to Jesus, let's actually give our lives to Jesus instead of just saying, what tips does Jesus have for me to live today? Let's say, how did Jesus tell me? What did Jesus tell me real life looks like? The way of the lamb that leads to resurrection. Because the way of the dragon wins for a day, doesn't it? I mean, you, you execute somebody, they're dead until Jesus comes back. The way of the dragon wins for a day, but the way of the lamb wins for eternity. You want to be able to recognize the way of the lamb, you need to be in the word of God and start with Matthew 5 to 7. Secondly, you can recognize that the way of the dragon is to cultivate power, authority, and influence in order to remake the world as someone sees fit. Now, we've got a lot of good ideas, don't we? We know a lot of good things to do, right? Feed the hungry. It's a good thing, pretty much without exception. Uh, Be nice. Uh, when I worked at the bank, uh, our bank had a mission statement. Our bank didn't have a, you know, a mission and vision statement. Sorry, and lots of other people did. And somebody asked our CEO one day, what's our, what's our mission statement? How do we know what we're about here? And our CEO said, be nice. If we do that, pretty much everything else is going to work. Be nice. Being nice is a good thing, right? We can pretty much all agree on that. Just about all the time, you're never going to go wrong if you be nice. But the problem is... The problem is, none of these things work perfectly and forever, do they? There are times when, there was a story in the paper, uh, this was several years ago, where a a father, he was going through a divorce, and uh, his he had the kid for the night, and uh, his kid was misbehaving, and wouldn't eat dinner, and all these things. He said, fine, you're going to go to bed hungry tonight. And yeah, feed the hungry, right? Except you're hungry, rebellious children. I guess. And then mom, you know, took it into the divorce court and said, my husband starves my children, right? Things get complicated, don't they? We'd like it if the world was black and white, but often the world is a bunch of different shades of gray. If we start worshiping what is good instead of the God who is good, we're going to start getting the proportions wrong. If you ever do much cooking, it matters how much of something you add to your recipe, doesn't it? Uh, I remember once early on when I was in college, I was cooking something, and I I was a cooking newbie at this time, cooking on my own really for the first time, and I thought, you know what I'd like to do? Uh, I like soy sauce, making rice, I'm going to make this stir fry, I'm going to put some soy sauce in with some mushrooms and kind of cook them for a while. Do you know what mushrooms like to do with any liquid? They absorb it like crazy. Now, a little bit of soy sauce at the right time in the recipe would have made for some delicious food, but... Cooking mushrooms in soy sauce makes for inedible mushrooms because all you can taste is the incredible concentration of salt. I felt like I was going to die. My blood pressure was up like 80 points just eating that one meal. Just being good is not enough. Just adding a good ingredient is not enough. We actually have to understand something about the way the world works. We have to worship the right God because he is the one who knows how to put the appropriate amount of soy sauce into every situation. Some situations probably don't call for soy sauce, as a matter of fact. We have to be able to identify the way of the lamb. We have to be able to identify the way of dragon, uh, the dragon that is all about cultivating power, authority, and influence in order to remake the world as you see fit. 
instead of to allow God to make the world as he knows is best. Now, let's say I'm running out of time really quickly here this morning. So let me skip to something I'm sure you're all interested in. Has anyone ever heard of the Mark of the Beast? Is anyone interested in knowing what that's all about? Okay, could somebody tell me? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, The Mark of the Beast. So as we're going through this whole thing about the beast, the big concern that John has for us is you are going to give your loyalty somewhere. He's writing to his audience. You're going to give your loyalty somewhere. You can give it to the dragon through the beast, or you can give it to Jesus Christ through faith. You'll do one of those things. Now, John is not warning us and saying, make sure that you don't accidentally put the mark of the beast on yourself somehow. John's saying, make sure that the beast doesn't put his mark on you because you have given your loyalty to him. This, he's really saying, this is how you'll tell people apart. Because earlier, John had actually said, remember, he, 144,000 were sealed. Not a literal 144,000, but 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, representing all of God's people everywhere and at all times. And these people were sealed. They were marked. They belong to God because they have given their loyalty to Jesus Christ. They have put their faith in him. And John's saying, Something will happen to the people who give their loyalty to the dragon through the beast. They will be marked as his. It's not about a universal world currency. It's not about getting a microchip so that you can't buy and sell. As a matter of fact, it's probably not a visible mark at all in any way, shape, or form. But it's a reminder that who you give your loyalty to, that's who you are owned by. Because people got marks on them in the first century. Slaves got marks. Roman soldiers got marks to show who they belonged to and who their loyalty was given to. These people are marked by the beast as his because they have given their loyalty to him. If you will not give your loyalty to the beast, you cannot be marked by him. You can't be marked by him. That's not how it works. Now, if there is an actual mark that's being referenced here. It's almost certainly having to do with whether or not you have offered a sacrifice to the image of Caesar. Because, uh, as a matter of fact, we know there is record of this. Pliny the Younger, a, a Roman governor, wrote to the Caesar at the time, and he said, I've got all these Christians everywhere, and people keep bringing them to my attention, and they really don't seem like much of a problem, except that they don't worship our gods, they only worship their own gods. So what I've been doing is I've been saying, hey, like, I'm not going to go look for any Christians, but if I find out someone is a Christian, I'll give them an opportunity to make a sacrifice to Caesar, and if they will, everything's fine. They can go home. I don't care. And if they won't, well, we'll feed them to the beasts. So the mark of loyalty became, will you offer sacrifice to Caesar or not? And we know certainly in the second and third centuries, in the empire-wide persecutions, the governors started issuing certificates to people saying, you have sacrificed, and you're okay. And if you didn't have that certificate, you probably wouldn't have been able to buy and sell in the marketplace. 
Again, the mark of the beast was that you had given your loyalty in sacrifice to a God other than Jesus Christ, who is really no God at all, but I digress. So I want you to not be afraid, first of all. You, you can't be tricked. If the government comes along someday and they say, hey, we're switching all of our money over to you know chips in your phone or something like that, this is not the mark of the beast. This is not the mark of the beast. You can't be tricked into this. If you will give your loyalty to Jesus Christ, no one else can mark you as theirs. And you know how to identify. Does this person belong to the lamb or does this person belong to the dragon? Well, how do they live? Let me close with this. Uh, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, we use these in our church often around communion. We share them, we state them together as a way of confessing our faith and saying this is what we believe, this is how we know we're Christians. And uh, the early creeds, uh, like the Apostles' Creed and the, uh, the Nicene Creed, uh, they actually begin, I believe, right? That's, you remember the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, etc., 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 and that's what the word creed means. Creed, credo in Latin, I believe. But notice what we believe in. I believe in, help me out, I forgot. Yeah, I believe, so that's the second thing we believe in in the creed, right? So let's start, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. See, so, We've got the whole trinity there. I want you to notice something. In Revelation chapter 13, we have the dragon. We have the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. The unholy trinity. The copycat of who God really is. Who demand your allegiance. But notice again in the creeds, we're not saying, I believe in this fact. I believe in you know, this, this doctrine so much as we are saying, I believe in this person. Because what makes us a Christian is not that we can confess all the canons of Dort or that we've even ever heard of all the canons of Dort or even one of them. The point isn't even that we can recite the Apostles' Creed from memory, although I think that's a really helpful thing in our lives. The point is that we have given our loyalty to the person of God the Father, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Now, what's the rest of the creed doing? I believe in these three persons. Well, the rest of the creed is identifying who they are, isn't it? God the Father Almighty. Well, who's he? He is the maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ. His only, well, who is he? The Father's only Son, my Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, descended into hell, and on the third day rose again from the, uh, from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, who's that? Well, he is the one who seals all of God's good promises to us. He gives us the resurrection from the dead. He gives us the forgiveness of sins. He does all of these things. See, the creed becomes the way we identify the God that we believe in.
that we've given our loyalty to. And so what we need to do this week is go dig into the rest of our lives. We need to start saying, where is my loyalty not given to Jesus Christ? Where is my loyalty not demonstrating the way of the Lamb? Where is my loyalty showing that I'm trusting in something and someone other than, than the person I have placed my hope in? Uh, Martin Luther had a really hard time reconciling the book of James from the New Testament with uh, his key doctrine, which is that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Now, he's right, 100%. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But then James said this. He said, uh, so you say you believe in God. Okay, but if you don't act like it, that faith is dead. See, people who believe in God live like it. They live like they mean it. So show me your faith by what you do. Now, Luther didn't like it because it sounded to him like James was saying, it's works that saves us. But that's not what James was saying at all. He says, no, you, you are saved by grace, but you can't be saved by grace and, and have no evidence that that's transformed your life. John Calvin, I think it was, it may have actually been Luther himself, said, we are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. It's accompanied by a changed and transformed life. So if you're wondering, why am I doing, I know I'm supposed to do good, but, but how does that relate to my faith? Well, you don't do good so you're more acceptable to God. You do good because that's living in the faith. In how, how can we have faith in Jesus Christ? How can we trust him and not do anything he says? Test your faith this week. Turn the other cheek. Do it. Because when you do it, you're walking the road of the cross. How can you be more like Jesus than by walking the road of the cross?